0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation podcast network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now Lacrosse is added again with a new line of lace- up hunting boots, the Navigator series and in that Navigator series there are two models. there's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new navigator series, visit lacrossefootwear.com.
1: This is a Houndsman XP podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. In this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast, we are going to feature Mike Cauley of Bayou Cajun Plots. And Steve, you've known Mike for 40 years. I've known Mike for probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years maybe. Uh, What a great guy, hard hunter, and has established those Bayou Cajun Plots as the real deal in the plot breed.
2: Yeah, without embarrassing our guest, you know, uh, Mike Cauley is a consummate uh, big game hunter. Uh, he's tough as nails. He's a farrier by trade. Uh, he lives in an area of the country certainly not easy to hunt, not uh, not easy on man nor dogs. He's hunted virtually uh, all over the world. And uh, he's just a super guy that I uh, immediately liked when I met him. And uh, he always got my juices flowing to get involved some way in a hog hunt by the photos that he would bring each year to plot days of these tremendous uh, boars that he was catching with his plots, and so uh, this is going to be a great interview today. I'm, I'm really looking forward to spending the time with, with our friend Mike Cauley.
1: Oh, no doubt. Hey, before we get to that, let's, uh, let's cover a couple things for Houndsman XP podcast, uh, things that are going on, things that are coming up. And uh, the response has been huge. We've been setting records with uh, downloads each week and things are really taking off. You track most of those numbers and most of those stats for us,
2: Steve. So what are you seeing there? Well, what I'm seeing, uh, Chris, is something that I never expected to see at this level, uh, at this uh, juncture in our journey. Uh, We are approaching very soon and perhaps by the time uh, this podcast uh, airs or very close to that time we're approaching 50,000 downloads can you imagine right and and we've only been
1: rolling for six months so it's beyond my expectations and in celebration of that 50,000 download episode then we are going to have a giveaway we've been talking about it on our social media platforms uh, tell them people that they need to get a Houndsman XP logo patch cap and get a picture. Uh, we'll, we'll leave all the details out there. By the time you hear this podcast, you're going to have clear details on what that's going to be. And, and very soon after this podcast, then we're actually going to do the drawing for the grand prize on the podcast. So you'll need to listen in or, to the podcast in order to uh, claim your prize but we've got some some items that we're going to be giving away including uh, at least a $100 gift card from W Hunting Supply uh some Houndsman XP swag and then some other items that uh that that we're going to we've rounded up
2: yeah it, it, the prize package is growing by the day and it's uh, it's exciting it really is and, and i i look forward to uh uh announcing that uh perhaps on the next episode but uh uh, the main thing that our listeners need to know is how can they participate in the uh in this drawing can you tell them chris
1: yeah so the the way we're going to participate is uh you're going to have to have logo wear from houndsman xp you're going to have to take a picture and then uh The best details are going to be posted on our Facebook page. Okay, we've got two different things floating around there on Facebook. We've got the discussion group and we've got the page. So if you haven't been over to the Houndsman XP underscore podcast page, you need to go there and like that page and start following us there as well. We'll lay all that out there. And the reason we do that is because that's our business page. That's where we can tie things in. W and some of our other sponsors and it, things just flow better so that's why we're going to lay this all out in detail within the next uh, few days on our Houndsman XP podcast page all right it sounds like a plan to me well, let's uh let's get into this interview Mike or I called you Mike I don't even know who I'm talking to. <laughs> I'm so wound up about talking to my old buddy Mike, Mike Colley. I don't remember who I'm talking to right now.
2: <laughs> well, uh, you shouldn't be doing that at your age, son. Uh, that's an everyday <laughs> occurrence for me, so <laughs> get used to it. All right. All right.
1: <laughs> Welcome to the Houndsman XP Podcast, and this week we have got an old friend for steve and i both mike Colley, and uh we of uh, you cajun plots from folsom louisiana so we recorded this the original episode you remember this train wreck steve we tried to do it on our zoom recorder <laughs> back when we were you know six months ago when we're rookies not like we're experts now you know but uh and it was a complete train wreck. We tried to do it on our Zoom and, and didn't get our sound. So I'm Mike's so busy, we had to wait for him to get a shoulder surgery. So we slow him down long enough to get him on the phone.
2: Well, that's for sure. It's uh, it's going to be uh, a lot of fun today. I've known this guy for a long time. And uh, I've got a lot uh, that I'd like to throw in as we go along. But, man, let's get out there, uh, get get this information out to our listeners and let them know who Mike Cauley is and and, uh, uh, what it's like to be a hog hunter in South Louisiana. Yeah, Mike, how are you today?
0: Doing fine, guys. I appreciate y'all calling and us getting together. Uh, I was just thinking, Steve, it's probably been almost 40 years, you know, Mm. uh, since we met each other. That's a long time.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I tell you what, uh, there's a lot of years that I can look back on. uh not looking for any wishes but uh my birthday's coming up in just a couple of days and uh, it just seemed like it's impossible that that many years have gone by but thing i remember about you mike first of all when i first met you is that all the outstanding photos you had of those hog hunts in louisiana with the plots and man i used to just drool over those things when you'd bring them out and and you for the for the time uh, uh uh, that you had a great camera and got some great photos and uh, and you were always at plot days and of course you and I know the the back story of our friendship but man it's been a long one it's been a great one from my standpoint
0: yeah and one of the highlights of every plot days was sitting down and talking to your dad because he sure had some great stories <laughs>
2: yeah he's the one that got me into this madness called hound hunting and took me to plot days from the time i was pretty small and uh, i can remember just being open-eyed and all ears sitting around listening to people like uh, uh, benny moore and dale Brandenburger and mr roark and and colonel bill rogers and wayne griggs and on and on and on these guys talking about these plot dogs man and it was it was a great education for a kid and uh, uh, and my dad he looked forward to that every year he loved plots and he loved plot people more than that and uh, it, it's nice for you to to mention him Mike
1: this uh this yeah, this sport has forged a lot of relationships over the years and um, man some of them are just deep-rooted and lifelong friendships and all surrounding a common love of the chasing game with with hounds and it plot hounds are no different it seems like there's a lot of those relationships within the plot hound breed
0: yes i'm i've been very fortunate you know to meet you know plot hound breeders you know bear hunters from all over the country and you know trading out hunts and just having a good time really all good people
1: I'll just add how I how I how I know you Mike and how I got to know you is I guess it was probably back from the plotdogs.com days. Steve your your old website that that you ran with a message board there and and I kept seeing this guy by the name of uh I what was your handle on there? Was it Cajun?
0: Cajun, yes.
1: Yeah, Cajun and uh kept posting these stories and and pictures of plots and stuff and I thought, man, this is a guy I need to go go meet. And uh, ended up coming down on hog hunting with you, and and realized what kind of dogs you were actually hunting. And and the thing that sticks out to me the most, besides the whole episode with the bulldog, and we'll get to that soon, but uh, is when we were we were in the bayou on your boat, and we were uh, listening. We we found some tracks, or we struck a track off of the off the shoreline there, and you had some older dogs that were in there running this hog. And you put the boat on the bank because you're going to turn some young dogs loose in on it. And we didn't realize we were on an island. You know, we were on a little island out in the bayou there. And we led those plots over there at the edge of that. And you cut those two seven-month-old pups loose. And they hit the water. I mean, they launched off this high bank into that bayou and swam that bayou like a couple of uh, dock-jumping labs. I mean, it was impressive, and they were they were in the race and at the bay up when we got there. When we finally got ourselves straightened out, of course we didn't swim it. But uh, when we got ourselves back in the boat and got around there, they were—they already had that hog caught. Do you remember that hunt?
0: Uh, what hunt? No, I'm just teasing. Yeah, <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> I, I do remember it vaguely. You know, getting older sometimes the memories aren't what they used to be, but yeah, that, that was a very good hunt. We were on and, uh, I, I do feel like I need to apologize for not having a train catch that hump, but luckily for us, the plots came through and caught everything.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys are talking a lot about old old times here and I've got a lot that I want to talk about too, but, uh, you know what I, I, uh, I did my homework and I wrote down some questions that I wanted to ask this fella, and I even shared them with you, Chris. Yeah, you did. And uh, do you think we can get maybe into our little uh, makeshift outline here and kind of get some, yeah. And uh, I'm sure a lot of these stories just like that are going to come out. I've got some things that I'd like to talk to Mike about later on too about uh, breeding the dogs and some of the things that we've got together and Collaborated on and so forth. But uh, this is going to be a good show for uh, a- anybody out there that's ever thought they wanted to go hog hunting. Uh, when we're through here today, Mike, they might change their mind about that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I- I'm hoping that we're going to be able to paint a picture today of what hog hunting with hounds and with bulldogs is like in those uh, swamps down in bayous, as Chris says. And uh, uh it's going to be a great great time uh chris you're going to take the lead on this thing and and let's see if how much of this we can whittle down in an hour or so sure mike um you know one
1: of the things that we always ask our our guests on the show is what is it that got you into hounds and and uh how did that all how did your how did your career as a houndsman all start
0: Uh, Well, it basically started as a kid. We always had dogs, you know, and, uh, you know, I used to have a collie that, I mean, and we stayed in the woods. I was probably only seven or eight years old. You know, today people wouldn't think of letting their kids just ramble around out in the woods, but it was like a way of life for us. Our house backed up to, you know, a pretty big set of woods, and I was always up and down the creek. Well, that collie dog I had, he would tree squirrels. He he would chase rabbits, even caught a couple of rabbits. And anyway, from there, as a teenager, I had a cur dog that would tree squirrels pretty good and coons. Mm-hmm. And it was just a natural progression, you know, to get into uh, coon hunting. And my first coon dog I actually got from Dale Brandenburger out of Pioneer Valley Echo. And she was a heck of a squirrel dog and a coon dog. Ended up putting her in night hunts when she was i think seven years old and in one year made a night champion out of her and had a first and second in the acha money hunts but by the time she hit eight you know she had just slowed down too much but she mm-hmm. was a heck of a pleasure dog
1: yeah well steve you you got a follow-up you want to ask on that
2: well yeah i of course you mentioned there that the first plot that you got came from Dale Brandenburger and i think our listeners know who Dale was he was probably the foremost plot breeder in the country for many years man that was responsible for going over to the mountains of north carolina and tennessee and purchasing dogs back in the 40s and bringing them back to the midwest and putting them in the magazines and i think he continuously uh, ran an ad in American Cooner Magazine for, it was probably 40-some years. So a lot of people got their start in plot dogs through Dale Brandenburger. But was this, did this uh, female that you got from Dale, did that that uh, spark you to want to wanna be more involved with plots? Or how did that happen, Mike?
0: Okay, well most people don't know that Louisiana had an importation of Russian boar back in the early seventies. And, you know, we always had curd dogs, but we were getting into some really long races that most of the time the curd dogs couldn't finish. So I'd always read about plots from the time I was a kid and, you know, like sports or field magazines or outdoor life. I don't really remember, but just what I read about them, you know, the tenacity they had, you know, uh, the never quit attitude. So anyway I started accumulating plots and I do have to back up, uh Mag- Maggie, the Brandenburger Jet was not my first plot. She was my first coon dog plot. But I had another plot that uh came out of some of Ed Sittner's breeding from Idaho and I did have him a couple of years before Maggie. But uh any anyway I started getting plots and uh you know, it took me a couple of years or so to finally start getting you know what i needed and pretty much from there you know just been breeding those dogs on and a lot of those dogs go back to your dad's breed you know the bear pen line and that's basically what i had the most luck with you know the bear pin line uh wings bred dogs and swampland breeding
1: well mike i've got a question for you because i've i've seen you respond to this question several times you know, you'll see a, a post come out on social media, it used to be on the message boards, but now it's social media, uh, about weems bred dogs. And I always appreciated your answer that you would give people, you know, when somebody would say, Does can anybody tell me where there's some weems bred plots out there? And just just tell our listeners, you know, what your feelings are on that. You've been you've been breeding your own line for enough years now that Bayou Cajun plots are definitely a recognizable name. So what's your take on on the weems-bred plots of today?
0: Okay, well, my take is there are no more weems-bred plots. Mr. Everett, you know, he's been dead quite a while. There are a few people that have taken his dogs and just bred strictly, you know, from weems-bred dogs, but, you know, they're no longer weems-bred dogs. The people that are breeding them, it's their line. Uh, it would be probably better said that, you know, say my dogs go back to wings breeding, but you know, today there are no more wings bred dogs. You know, uh, basically my line goes, goes back to wings breeding, swampland breeding, and some of, uh, shamrock breeding, which is, uh, basically you might as well say, go back to wings bred dogs. Yeah. The, uh, and most people that aren't very familiar with the Swampland line, uh, Mr. Leroy Hogg and uh, Everett Wings bred back and forth and basically started with very similar bred dogs. Mm-hmm. And Steve would know more about that than I would.
2: Yeah, Steve. Uh, yeah, and in, in fact, most of the big game bred dogs. Yeah, most of the big game bred dogs plots uh in recent years uh you know go back to those dogs that everett and leroy and uh and uh gene white and some of those people bred uh and they came up with some good combinations of dogs that just seemed to naturally fit uh bear hunting and big game hunting and uh, of course then there were the cascade bred dogs from out on the west coast that Doyle DeMoss uh, bred out there. So, you know, those lines uh, proved to be uh, successful on Bear. And I think uh, it's pretty easy to say that, <clears throat> you know, it's a Weems bred dog or a Bread, burger bred dog, but you make a good point, uh, Mike. In my own experience, my, my father and I bred that Bear pen line of dogs for many years. And then we did some interbreedings with uh Everett Weems dogs. And uh so uh we had uh, we had some success with it, but people contact me today and say, you know, uh are there any bear pin bred dogs out there? And my answer is no. You know, we didn't I did not after my father passed on, I did not continue to breed those dogs simply because I did not have the time to prove those dogs i didn't have the uh, time to keep them after bear and a uh, big game and so there are some hunters that are hunting dogs that go back to that line of dogs for sure and you being one of them mike but yeah. to say that the bear pen dogs still mm-hmm. exist i'd have to say no yeah that's that's
1: interesting take uh and i just thought it was I always appreciated about that that about your comments, Mike, because it always brought a lot of clarity to a lot of that. You know, same thing happens in the Blue Tick breed about uh, Smoky River dogs, and in the Walker breed about Finley River dogs. And you know, uh, there are people that have taken over those lines and use those lines as some of their base, uh, their foundation stock, I guess. But as far as you know, being true weems bred dogs. We can only hope that we have a few in the pedigree that we can trace back to. I guess. Yes. Yeah. So so tell us how you how you ended up choosing hogs. We started to go down that path, Mike, and then we got kind of derailed on on this Weems thing. But tell us how you chose because that's mainly what you're hunting. How many hogs did you catch last year?
0: Uh probably close to a hundred. We uh, we caught. Call- well i caught 75 back in february just the month of february
3: mm-hmm. now we're
0: hunting management areas and uh it's just loaded with hogs what we call easy hogs cuz they only get hunted once a year and i missed three hunts because of work but my buddy he was right at 91 mm-hmm. and uh so he was about 15 hogs 16 hogs ahead of me but since then uh yeah but who's keeping when we track get back Who's keeping track? Right. Since then <laughs> since the uh we we get back into the real world where and hunt places where the hogs are dogged a lot, we basically track hunt. So we like a, a you know, a cold nosed dog that can take a track, you know, trail it out and get it jumped. And normally the race is on. A lot of people believe a hog cannot run. They can run like a deer if they've been pressured. You know, you always have pockets of what we call easy hogs that we get invited to where you know the hogs they're not used to dogs they don't run they bay up but you, you hunt most places you know there's so many hog hunters nowadays that you know the hogs just get a lot of pressure yeah and a lot of people cur, cur dogs and not all cur dogs but you know your average cur dog's gonna jump a hog run it for half an hour and quit come back now they do have some good cur dogs out there that can make the long races but you know, they're few and far between, and that's basically why, you know, I've chose plots because they're going to put an effort in. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, yeah, we've been doing, you know, pretty good. You know, we're not stacking them up like we do in February, but, you know, we'll catch one or two hogs almost every trip out. But we are targeting, you know, big boars, looking for big tracks.
1: Yeah, and you've been hunting all summer too, up until your shoulder surgery. There, I can't believe you're out there waiting around in those swamps in that heat down there.
0: Well, in the summer we're mostly hunting high ground. The alligators are so bad in the summer, not to mention gnats and mosquitoes, yeah. that we stay away from the the marsh. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got friends that they hunt the marsh uh, all summer, but they lose dogs to alligators and you know i like my dogs too much you know for that so
2: you know mike you make a good point there and that was one one of the things my dad over the years he was a bear hunter that was his game he loved it he he did some coon hunting but and he never did run his dogs on hogs because he thought they were just too rough on the dogs it was too easy to get dogs injured uh but we do care about these dogs and you know i've got a young dog that i'm working right now. He happens to be up in Pennsylvania and I'll be picking him up soon, but I didn't want to expose him to these alligators and, and all the dangers that are down here in these Florida swamps in the summertime. So, I I can follow your reasoning there for sure.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and also as I get older, I keep wondering how much longer, you know, I'll have as far as hog hunting. And uh, Tom Telford and Greg Michaels came down and made a hunt with me, and they were an inspiration because Greg's in his late 70s, Tom's 81, but they still love the thrill of hearing the hounds run. And Greg Michaels actually crawled into a briar thicket uh, right behind me and Charlie on a very big boar that we caught, and Greg was right there with us at 78 years of age.
2: Mm yeah he's tough. I hunted with him up with chad barth and and um uh, uh dan and and jonah place and those guys up in wisconsin one time and uh, and really enjoyed hunting with greg. He's a hard hunter for sure
1: yeah well, well mike um you've had some you've had some great dogs in over the years and uh um, in our original recording of this podcast you were telling a story about one of your plots that swam the uh the ship channel there and and I can't recall all that but I think that'd be a, a good good story for our listeners to hear
0: okay uh the dog's name was trapper and uh we'd started out we found a pretty decent track and uh I put Trapper and my Magnum dog on it. Now, Magnum was kind of halfway crippled, but he was fast enough he could stay up for a couple hours. Well, Trapper was known for his speed and stamina, and he was basically uh, a swampland bred dog with a little bit of goes-back-to-wings mixed in. So, uh, and he also had some of the bear-pin breeding in him. You know, actually on both sides, but, uh, Anyway, they trailed the hog up, jumped it, and uh, ran it about an hour. We packed dogs in, and we'd been running this hog three and a half hours or so. And the guy with the catch dog actually got tired of it, and he went home. Well, Trapper was ahead of everything. He was probably a good half mile of all the other dogs. And uh, the hog hit the uh, ship channel and started swimming to the other side. Well, Trapper swam after him, and by the time we got there, They were already halfway across. Well, we caught all the back dogs. We heard Trapper baying the hog over on the other side. So we had to, uh, you know, go load up all the four-wheelers, load up all the dogs, and uh, go to the other side. Well, in the meantime, my buddy Pat had called one of us. uh, We were in Orleans Parish. He called up one of his friends who's a policeman in Orleans Parish, now, is and, that, uh, is that right, met,
1: is that like a suburb, or is that New Orleans?
0: Well, it, it is in uh, New Orleans. It's, uh, you know, the edge of the city, it's so closed in, and where the edge of the city stops, the marsh begins. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, we, we always go in there, uh, you know, because we don't carry firearms or anything, and, uh, you know, catch hogs. We've done it for years and years, and... Uh, but anyway, when we got over to the uh, where Trapper was, they had moved into a junkyard, an abandoned junkyard. Well, we had two motorcycle policemen with us, two police units with us, and it must have been a slow crime day in New Orleans. <laughs> they were all excited, you know. We get over there, and Trapper's got Trapper has his hog bait up in a a banded van with a, you know, the doors were torn off of it. Yeah. And by then, you know, it's probably 1130. It was 90 degrees. And he's sitting there clocking them off on about 175-pound boar. And we did not have a catch dog. So the police wanted to shoot it, but Pat says, no, I'm going to run home and get my catch dog, and I'll be back. Well, he lives 45 minutes away. So we sat there for an hour and a half watching Trapper just clock them off. You know, that hog would charge him a little bit, he'd jump back, you know, and the hog would go right back in the van. Well, Pat arrived. Now, was Trapper you
2: know, in the van at any time, or was he standing guarding the door, so to speak?
0: Well, he was basically halfway in, in you know, uh, and if the hog would charge him, he would basically just jump backwards out of the van. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, Pat arrives. We send the catch dog in, catch the hog, and we we just uh, tied him up and brought him back over on the other side and turned him back loose. You know, a hog probably had about two inch cutters on him. You know, and you know nobody nobody really wanted him for a trophy, so you know we just relocated him. Yeah,
1: well, you're so you're hog hunting. You catch a hog in the hood of New Orleans, and you've got the popo there with you as backup. Yes. Yeah.
2: well Mike to back up just a little bit you talk about that ship channel Uh, how wide is that thing that he swam
0: it's close to a quarter of a mile wide it's probably uh, 300 yards there's a lot of ships that come up and down it in fact I almost lost 5 young pups 8 or 9 months old they were on a hog right in the middle of the ship channel a barge is coming and I told Todd, I said, the barge is going to hit them. They're not going to be able to get out of the way. We, we watched, and I, it's the most helpless feeling in the world. And all five of my pups disappeared, went under when that barge. And I told Todd, I said, there goes a whole year's worth of work on those five pups. Well, in about half a minute, the pups started bobbing up on the sides. And I said, "Wow, look at that! All five of my dogs made it. The hog didn't. The hog grounded. Mm. But that barge, <laughs> I, that barge actually ran over all five of them. And Incredible. that that wasn't enough for the pups. They all started swimming for home. So <laughs> it's, uh.
2: Well, you know that speaks a little bit to the plot breed, uh, Mike. You know they like water. It's been my experience yeah, I, over the years that plots really like water and they you know, swim races and things like that that the coon hunters do. Plots do really well at those sort of things. Uh but, but because they are natural swimmers, aren't they?
0: They are. I've always been amazed that dogs bred in the mountains make such good water dogs. They uh they really do. They take to it just about like a lab.
2: Right. I had a little female. I called her uh, a punch, and uh, she, she was out of the old bronco dog I had. <laughs> but she was funny. Uh, you could throw things out in a, those strip po- uh, strip mining ponds there in West Virginia. She'd swim out there, and then if you turned your head, you'd think she disappeared because she'd go underwater, and she she was like an otter, and she might go a hundred mm-hmm. feet underwater and then pop back up. You know, I mean she she swam. It it was yeah. really funny to watch her, you
0: know. Hm. Yeah, that's pretty amazing there.
2: Yep. <laughs> Mike, you uh you
1: mentioned something in in that story there with Trapper about uh bef- Let's back up just a little bit. So tell us what Trapper was out of again. Goes back to Swampland. Trapper
0: Yeah, tra- Trapper was out of my bell two dog. And she was uh her side was Swampland Junior, and uh, the female <clears throat> was basically uh, my babe dog, which had basically a little bit of everything, a little bit of Weems, a little bit of uh, Swampland, you know. So, uh, but in- anyway, uh, I took that Bell 2 dog when I was up in Minnesota and took her down to Leroy's and bred her to his junior dog. And got uh, that's why well, that's why I got the Bell Two dog. Mm-hmm. And I actually had t- two litter mates too, that died hog hunting. You know that we were hunting out here in the cut over during drought season, and they just ran themselves to death and overheated. You know I ended up tracking the both of them. But anyway, that Bell Two dog was a pretty nice trail dog, all, all around dog. And I took her and bred the Paul Sis Dummy dog which was basically swampland and uh, bear pen and and wings. And that, that cross produced my Bell 3 dog and my trapper dog. Mm-hmm. And that could have very well been the best cross I've ever made. You know, dogs just had it all.
2: There yeah. were some good crosses back there, and that that brings up t- brings to mind to me the fact that, you know, to look for good dogs that come out of entire litters of good dogs and as i as you talk about Sisk's blackie which they call dummy you know he he goes back to a there's a female on his pedigree maybe his mother uh, that was out of an entire litter of good dogs it's back when i bred the uh, bear Pen blackie female to weems plot puny and uh, and that you know, that was an uncle-niece cross, and it produced a lot of good dogs. So uh, this is not, a, as I said earlier on, I'm not or nor is anyone else breeding bear pin dogs and, and and selling puppies. So, uh, but uh, we all have those dogs that we, we like to associate with. But that was a good line of dogs on uh, big game for sure.
0: Yeah, and I think the dog you're talking about, was a Bolin Sugarfoot? Yes, uh-huh. Uh, you know, which was by the Solomon Dog, which it was a bear-pin bred dog. And, uh, yeah. and if we would have known what that Solomon Dog was reproducing, which he was the sire of your Roper Dog, your uh, Wrangler Dog, and my Blackie female. and Oh, yeah. Anyway... It just seemed like no matter what he was bred to, that dog really reproduced, and I tried to stack him in my pedigree as much as I could.
2: Sure. Yep.
1: Well, For Mike, sure. you uh, you made mention of uh, a key element of a hog hunt there when we were talking about uh, hog hunting in the hood, and that was uh, the catch dog and the bulldog that you guys use, and I know that you've been you've been breeding uh, some of your own bulldogs. Maybe exclusively, I know that we had to go get one because you your bulldog was hurt when I came down and owned it with you, but you know talk to us a little bit about uh bulldogs
0: okay, well, there's a lot of people that think catch dogs are a dime a dozen, but it is hard to find you know bulldogs that won't eat your other dogs up, you know that get along good with people you know I won't have a mean dog on my place, and uh A lot of people are amazed. I can create my male bulldogs with my male plots, and, you know, you never hear a peep out of them. You know, the bulldogs, once you raise them and train them, they know what their job is, you know, and they're basically as good good in nature dogs as any lab you ever saw. Mm -hmm. But uh, we, uh, yeah, we do raise a lot of our bulldogs just because it's so hard to find, you know, exactly what we want, you know, and. You know, we're basically looking for bulldogs that catch on the ear. That way, they don't hurt the hog, and uh, you know that's really the safest place for them to catch. And you know, just good-natured bulldogs that can handle a hog. So,
1: one of the things that amazed me when I was down there with you, of course, I'm a, I'm you know from up here in Indiana and law enforcement for 28 years. So my exposure, and when we talk about bulldogs, we're talking about pit bulls, American pit bull terriers, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. So you know, uh, a white boy from Indiana is thinking, and a police officer. The only pit bulls we see up here are garden meth houses. So, you know, when we came down there and hunted with you, it was a whole new experience for me. I was, uh, I was absolutely intimidated the first time I saw your your bulldogs, and uh, and, uh, I found out real quick that 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 type of a dog that you're using is uh as gentle as as labradors any lab you ever saw uh one one hunt we were on we were walking past the front of a four-wheeler and and uh, there was a bulldog on a platform on the front and you know he just reaches his paw out towards me and kind of cocks his head and it came came evident to me real quick that that he was more interested at that point in the hunt of just getting some attention and and it was really it was really a different experience for me to be able to see the types of dogs that you were using for that because they've got so much negative uh, media going on around them and, and special, special ordinances passed in, in different cities and stuff like that that are actually restricting the breeding of, of these uh, pit bulls.
2: As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate, especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. Remax Hall of Fame Realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country, whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home.
1: And Steve, Remax Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. Remax has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanharrell.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did.
0: Yeah, and, you know, another reason for the bulldogs, too, you know, we would rather the bulldogs ca- catch the big dogs, but if we have too many plots on the ground, they generally take care of business themselves, you know, but, but the bad thing is, you know, they get beat up a lot, and, you know, we try to water the pack down. Like, if we've got a real gritty dog, we either hunt him by himself or with a dog that's not gritty. hmm but, you know, sometimes when you get friends together, you have too many dogs. And, uh, in fact, this buddy of mine, uh, Trey, we used to hunt together a lot. I think we went two years and never used a bulldog The Spots just called everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, it's a lot of wear and tear on your pack when they do it that way because if they catch a big boar way out away from you, by the time you get there, that hog's worked on them, you know, and, we we would just prefer the bulldogs go in and, <clears throat> you know, we have a vest for them, so they're pretty well protected and, and, uh you know, let them do the catching.
2: Well, Mike, what is it about, you know, we talk about the temperament, and, of course, that's important, and having a good handle on, on the dog, I'm sure, is important. But, you know, what are the elements that, besides temperament and all, you said you want one that by the ear are there other other things that you look for uh, you know that would separate the average catch dog from what you would consider a really good catch dog
0: yeah that's uh. to me first, first of all they've got to be good natured y- you know any large breed of dog if they show any aggression whatsoever towards people my opinion they should be put down before an accident ever happens. And uh, But I've been very fortunate, you know, in 40 years of having bulldogs. You know, I've never had one that ever showed any aggression towards people. And a lot of that, you know, is having them socialize. You know, we take them everywhere with us. You know, they meet a lot of people. And uh, so, so that's one trait we're very strong on. You know, they've got to be very good-natured. And uh, like I said, we like your dogs. They've got to get along with other dogs. So it's a lot of it is so much how you raise them. And, you know, my bulldog puppies, they run loose with my plot puppies, you know, around here until they're five, six months old. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of that, just getting off subject just a little bit, I've got two plot puppies around here out of two different litters. They're about five months old, one of them six months old. That started treeing squirrels so i think i'm gonna hold them out of the hog pack and go back to some coon hunting
2: interesting <laughs>
1: there you go is there it, you go is one of those pups a litter mate to my pup mike
0: uh a half mate but okay. by the same sire yeah yeah okay
2: mm-hmm. yep well you know mike as you talk about that i have a flashback to my days at the registries where a lot of our work was to work on behalf of dog owners and uh, and breeds by uh, doing all that we could to defeat uh, breed-specific vicious dog legislation. And one of the arguments that we always got against, especially when I was with the, the UKC, because the American Pit Bull Terrier was one of the original breeds that UKC registered, years and years ago and you know when these town councils or county commissions or whatever got together to uh, devise a hit list of breeds that they wanted to eliminate and I went through that right here in my own homeowners association uh, just this last year uh, they wanted to to put a to put a list of breeds that were inherently dangerous and that's just simply not true. You know, it, it boils down to the handling, and, and, and as you said so well, if it's a heavy-duty dog, then you've got to know what you have. You've got to know how to handle that dog, how to train that dog, and all. But uh, the old myth that, that pit bull dogs are, are vicious and mean uh, is simply not true. You know, even back in the day, way back when dogs were used for fighting, and they actually were originally bred for that uh, they were never mean toward their handlers or spectators or whatever they would have been as you said put down had they been But anyway just a point I wanted to make there you know that uh the breed uh, is bred for a purpose and that's to catch uh, they were I think if if my uh, memory serves me they were bred to catch bulls by the nose and hold them yeah, you know so um, that that's inherently uh their job at any anyway, rate. that's a little rabbit hole or rabbit path I went down, but uh, I think it's right. good information for people out there that might be considering uh that breed
0: and and you know here's the deal too on pit bulls, and I've done a lot of history on or read a lot of history on them. they uh You know, like you had mentioned, the old-time bulldog breeders that used to fight bulldogs when, you know, bulldog fighting was legal, they couldn't tolerate a dog that was mean because that dog could attack anybody in in the ring or whatever. Uh, So most of the time they were cold. The the problem is there's so many other dogs that bite people but when a pit bull bites somebody, he normally doesn't stop, and they're so powerful, you know, they're going to make the headlines. So, you know, I've always believed that uh, you just need to call the problem before it ever starts. And a lot of people, like Chris, you had mentioned, these people that have pit bulls to guard mess houses, they, uh, you know, they encourage their dogs to get after people. Right, and that's right, that's especially the, people the in problem. uniform. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, and that's where the problem starts. So.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, Mike, I've got a question here for yeah, and I know that you uh, uh, that you also like to bear hunt with your plot dogs, and that you do make trips up to Canada and Wisconsin and various places. Uh, do you use the same dogs? Uh, to hunt bear that you hunt hogs with
0: about 98 percent of them yes mm-hmm. they uh you know back when florida had a season we used to run over there quite a bit and that was just about five hours from me so you know half a dozen times a summer i was over there running and then i was at least in georgia that we still go to that you know and we run bear over there And that's, uh, but yeah, the same dogs, you know, they, I I guess they're just on the trashy side. They don't care what they're running as long as it's big.
2: (laughs) As long as it's big and stinky, right?
0: Yeah, that's right.
2: (laughs) Well, what, what would you, uh, say are the main, are, are there some characteristics or traits that separate, uh, a good bear dog from a good hog dog or vice versa?
0: Well, I mean, a good bear dog has to tree and stay treed, you know, because it might take a long time, you know, for the hunters to get to the tree. Uh, you know, hog dogs don't really have to worry about that because their, hog, their game's on the ground, so they're going to stay, you know. Uh, but so, As you well know, some bears climb up. Most people think, oh, it's easy for a dog to tree a bear probably 50% of the bear that are tree the dogs can't see them you know they've got to locate them so you know you you do, do need you know a long hard tree dog and or they just got to stay till you get there oh, and go ahead other, other than that trait you know the rats are pretty similar you know there's a lot of bear that stay on the ground you know and a dog's just got to have that nerve to him you know, most bears, they're going to find the thickest, nastiest place they can the bay up in. And, uh, you know, hogs are the same way. There is there is something about a bear that he will scare the heck out of a lot of dogs, you know, where, you know, those dogs are just quit. They don't want anything more to do with them. And I haven't quite seen that on, you know, in wild boars. You know, maybe once or twice I've seen a boar that really put the fear of God you know on a dog and but for the most part you know dogs respect a bear way more than they respect a the hog
1: interesting
0: well when
2: you talk about that um i i see so many questions i have here uh you know i i mentioned my dad earlier in his desire not to run his dogs on hogs for fear that he'd he'd get them cut up and he'd have to start over uh and you know, we certainly did have dogs that got hurt on bear over the years. Uh, the fancy female that we had that was the Weems Butch and bread, she was hurt many times, bit clear through the muzzle uh, one time, bit through the brisket all the way through on both sides one time. One time she came in with a pouch hanging, a rupture of her intestines hanging down like a basketball. Uh, You know, and I know that sounds pretty gruesome, but bear dogs have a dangerous job, and it does get dangerous at times. And, uh, but, you know, uh, as far as the grit aspect, what we call grit, the uh, willingness of a dog to get in there and mix it up with dangerous game on the ground, is there a difference in the way the dogs act around a bear and a hog? Uh, Yeah.
0: Kinda, you know, it's, you know, the problem is on 80% of the hogs we catch, we're running anywhere from big sows on the smaller hogs, and, uh, you know, the dogs get so used to catching them, that then when they run across, you know, say a big boar, they think they can just jump in and, you know, catch them, and sometimes they can, sometimes they can't, you know, uh. Where most bear, even, say, a hundred-pound bear, you know, uh, you know, the dogs will respect them a whole lot more. Uh, as far as the grit goes, there's such a fine line between too much grit and not enough. And I've thought about, you know, backing off the grit for hog dogs. You know, I don't bear hunt near as much as I used to. You know, I'm lucky to go two or three times a year. And uh, I don't need that kind of grit for hog hunting that I need, you know, for bear hunting. Uh, Case in point, Ben Jones, I know you know him, uh, you know, Tracy Jones, his dad, and Barry Tarleton, which all made a famous cross back in the day. Uh, Ben Jones has been hunting a female for me all summer, and he took her up to Maine. Well, I just got a $3,800 vet bill on her, you know, uh, Mm. a bear up there, he really got her down and made it count you know she was bit through the skull the foreleg the spine and uh her femur was uh broken in two places so you know uh i, I definitely think you can have too much grit you know uh and a lot of it depends on how many dogs you have on the ground naturally the more dogs are on the ground it seems the grittier they are so it's uh you need to balance your pack when you're running
2: well that i think is a subject probably for another day because there's so many different opinions about that word we we call grit and how important it is or how little it is we had uh mark dufrain on uh earlier uh in an early episode talking about how he was using another breed of dogs To bear hunt and he wasn't catching bears he was running them out of the country he switched over to the plot breed and all of a sudden he was catching virtually every bear that he put down on and so there is certainly something to be said about that but it's not always in just sheer brute force of going in and trying to catch a bear because a dog that does that i think is going to be either like your dog up in Maine or or perhaps worse and uh, you know one of the the best bear dogs i remember of my experience of my dad's uh, of our own dogs was a female named Julie and she went back to some of those same dogs that you talk about but you know Julie was never hurt by a bear and she treated many bear and but she was like a mosquito on a bear she was all over him all around him Uh, nipping, barking incessantly, but, but never grabbing hold and holding on type thing. Uh, Right. So, you know, I guess that can be, it's all in the eyes of the beholder as to what you want. But I think the dog at least has got to make that bear believe that he's bad. (laughs) <laughs> and and harass him enough to make him go up a tree or back up into one of those nasty places that you talked about.
0: Yeah. And, you know, all bears are different. There are a lot of bears that tree before the dogs even catch up to them. And there are a lot of bears the dogs has got to show them or make them go up a tree. And then there's some bear that will never tree. And I don't care how many dogs, you know, you put on them. You know, all, all you're going to have is vet bills, and I can attest to that too. <laughs> you know, so it's yep. uh. Well, Mike, you know, you've, just, you've hunted all over the world,
1: so I mean, you've hunted you've hunted Canada and and Wisconsin. Where are some of the places you've hunted to bear?
0: Well, I think the prettiest places I've hunted was Sweden. You know, it is pristine country. Uh They're basically on the same latitude as Alaska, so very similar terrain and uh we're hunting brown bear over there and i was very fortunate i was over there uh well several years back and we caught the fourth largest bear ever killed in sweden and it weighed 699 pounds Mm. um so that was uh and two of the dogs i bred trained and then sold over there were the two dogs responsible for trailing it up bringing it to bay and you know, getting it killed. So that was like icing on the cake.
1: Yeah, so how's brown bear hunting different than, than black bear hunting?
0: Uh, well, it's very similar. You know, basically you've got to find a track, you know, and put the dogs on. I think the hunters have more to fear from a brown bear than they ever do from a black bear. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've been within 10 feet, even 5 feet from a bear, black bear bait on the ground, you know, pulling dogs off. Where a brown bear basically if he smells you, he's coming for you, and the last time I was over there, they did have two bear attacks. uh one guy thought his dog had a moose bait up, and when he snuck in, bear charged and got him down, and his buddy had to shoot the bear off of him Now, I don't know if I'd be more afraid of the guy <laughs> shooting shooting the bear or the bear itself, but uh anyway, they have a lot of bear attacks over there, and uh Another problem is the uh, it's not legal in Sweden to run sows with cubs. Mm-hmm. You have got to pull the dogs off of, off of them, and uh, so it's uh, you know it can be kind of m- m- more dangerous for the hunter, you right. know, getting his dogs off.
1: And and are the limited? Are they, black bear hunting. Are they limited to the number of dogs that they can use?
0: Yes, you're only allowed two dogs on the ground at once. Wow. So yeah, those dogs had to be mentally tough. And, uh, as far as, uh, you know, r- running bear, it's, uh, you know, two, two, two plots are really just two good dogs are enough to bring it to bay. It's, uh, but those those brown bear they can run, too. Those browns that are like, say, 250 and under, man, they mm-hmm. can run like a black bear. You, you can run them all day. It's unbelievable the endurance they have.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, your stories there remind me of when I was in Japan. Uh, my desire was to go brown bear hunting on the northern island of uh, Hokkaido. And... uh Back in those days, it was the early 70s. There was a hunter out in Olympia, Washington, that listeners may have heard of. And I know you have, Mike. Uh, his name was Doyle DeMoss. And they called him D. And he bred up a, a strain of plot dogs that he called Cascade bred dogs. And his wife was from Japan. And he had gone over and hunted those brown bears. So I contacted him that i could get with a local hunter and get a chance to go and and hunt one of those bears and he told me right up front he said number one don't go with a deer rifle you need a 300 magnum or something (laughs) with a lot of punch if you're going to hunt those bears and number two If they get wind of you, as you said, they're going to come after you. They're going to charge you. There's no question about it. And then I began to read stories in the local newspapers that came down out of Hokkaido in the big town of Sapporo there uh, that these bears were coming out of the mountains when the feed source was bad. And they were coming down and attacking people in the villages. So... uh, This brown bear is a whole different character than the black bear, for sure.
1: Yeah, well, that's interesting because I think most people think of Japan. Go ahead, Mike.
0: Yeah, uh, also, you know, as far as danger to the dogs, I I really don't see them uh, that much more dangerous to the dogs than black bear. No, because it's always been the smaller black bear that have done the most damage to our dogs, it seems like. Uh, You know, they're quicker, they can run a dog down, where a much bigger bear, you know, while they can do the damage if they catch a dog, you know, they're a little bit slower than those smaller bear.
2: Is the terrain more open there in Sweden? Is it kind of like, you know, I've hunted bear out west in uh, Arizona and and, uh, New Mexico. And the woods are a lot more open than what we hunt in the Appalachian mountains uh, back East. What's the terrain like that you're hunting in there?
0: It's kind of open forest land, but it also depends on where you're at. Uh, You know, one part of Sweden I hunted in was the best way to describe it as rocks. I mean, no way you can find a bear track. It's just rocks. And, I really don't know what those bear eat, you know, and there were a few open, uh, forests and all that, but it was just so rocky, you know, uh, you, you know, it's just hard to explain how those bear thrive mm-hmm. there. But most of the part, uh, I've been over there three times was, uh, a lot like, uh. i would say new mexico uh you know just open forest you know virgin timber and mm-hmm. you know you could see some places 200 yards through the woods but there are also you know like thickets you know mm-hmm. sometimes longer a creek you know those uh it'll get thick and those bear they know where every thick spot is
2: well uh those dogs that you hunted with over there were dogs that you had sold uh two hunters over there right
0: yes uh-huh how,
2: how they, did that come about what how did you get involved with exporting plot hounds to sweden
0: well they, they found me uh and <laughs> i i guess they found me through your website plot news uh you know because i used to post on there about some of our hunts in canada uh that we had and uh You know, we always had a very good spot to hunt up there, and, uh, you know, we'd always kill five or six bear or limit out every time we went. So uh, anyway, one day I got a call from Christer. Uh, Him and his his couple of buddies were uh, Michael Tam. They were in the States looking for plot dogs, and he wanted to know if I had anything for sale. And I said, no, I don't have anything, and they asked if I had any puppies. And I I didn't have any puppies at the time. And they wanted to know if they could just come by and look at the dogs. And when I say come by, keep in mind, these people were in New York. (laughs) And uh, I said, sure, y'all can come home by. 24 hours later, they were here at the house. They didn't think anything of driving across the country to look at some white dogs. And another thing that really surprised me, Sweden, the whole country, they are dog lovers. They uh, and everything they hunt over there, they hunt with dogs. But anyway, they came by, spent the night, you know, talked quite a while, and they invited me over, you know, to see uh, a couple of my dogs hunt. So I t- took a dog named Ruger and a dog named Kimasabi over there, and uh, we killed one bear. We should have killed two others, but due to circumstances, we didn't get it done. So they were pretty impressed and they they ended up buying Kimisabi and Ruger from me and from there on they ended up uh, probably buying half a dozen or more dogs from me.
2: Well, I don't want to give away all the secrets of your market over there, uh, Mike, but just in general terms, uh, how difficult is it to export dogs overseas? especially say to say to Sweden, for instance.
0: In the beginning, it was very difficult. They. uh, There, Sweden is a rabies free country, and what they wanted you to do is have your dogs vaccinated three months ahead of time for rabies. Then at the end of three months, you take your dog to a vet. They draw blood samples. They send the blood samples to Kansas State University to check for antibodies for rabies and if the number's high enough you're good to go then all you need is an international health certificate but you know a couple of years after that they've dropped those restrictions as long as your dog's vaccinated 30 days ahead of time you know uh, with the international health certificate you're good to go but once the international health certificate's filled out then you've got to take it and get it stamped by the state vet you know, uh, for him to approve everything, and then you're good to go.
2: Mm. How, long so not, is, how long a trip is? How long a trip for the dog is it? How, how many hours is he in the crate?
0: Uh, it's normally about twelve hours.
2: Mm. Well that's not too bad. Yeah. Mm. Expensive, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. In fact, it is cheaper for them. To fly over here, pick the dog up, and fly the dog as like baggage, because last time I checked, it was like two thousand twenty five hundred dollars just to ship a dog over there. How much? You know, just the two thousand to twenty five hundred dollars. Wow. You know, just to ship a dog. You know, as as freight, I guess you would say. Is
2: that first class or coach? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I, I've never seen first class, so I couldn't tell you. But uh, the do they get a, in,
2: do they get a full meal or a bag of peanuts? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> I don't I don't think they're full with too much because, but they are in a climate controlled cargo hold. So, mm.
1: I was sure. thinking the other yeah. day I was going to get one of those uh, what they call those uh, companion dog vests for. For uh, Cajun, when I when I go out west to hunt this year, what do they call it? yeah, there you go, yeah, emotional support dog, yeah, <laughs> he ride right in the seat beside me.
2: That's right, that's right.
0: Well, yeah, I can tell you this: uh, these dogs are my emotional support because without them, I think I'd be just bored to tears, you know, with nothing, you know, to look forward to. You know, dogs have just been a whale life, you know, since I was a little kid you know
2: isn't that the truth i think we can all share that uh that emotion mike you know i i'm down here in the swamp in a retirement community in florida but there's a plot hound laying on the floor here as i'm talking to you and uh you know and uh and he you know he he's doesn't owe me anything he's getting old but We've had a lot of good hunts together, but dogs become a way of life, and that—that's certainly for sure. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I, you know, I think we might have might have hit some of these points, but wh- you talked about Sweden. Well, before we leave Sweden, Mike, um, you say that bear that you killed was, or, or that was killed over there, was like the fourth biggest in mm-hmm. history and it was what 600 and some pounds
0: 699 pounds
2: wow and that was and number 4
0: <laughs> that was number 4 now now here's the kicker too this year they just killed a new record brown bear over there that was 780 pounds well w- when we killed this the 699 pound brown bear it it was still a month six weeks before he went into hibernation that bear could have easily put on enough fat, you know, to have been. You know, that's a lot of woulda, coulda, if, you know, but that bear still had plenty of uh, fat to put on for the winter. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I just had a Ripley's Believe It or Not moment here. Think about the world record or the state record for the state of North Carolina for a black bear. Right. It's over 800 pounds. I believe it Can was. Can you imagine,
0: I, um, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's 810
2: pounds. I'll Google it while you guys are catching up. Well, that, you know, of course, that bear's fattened on hog feed or corn or whatever or somehow. I mean, right. you know, but that. <laughs> that boggles my mind to think a black bear could actually be bigger than a, well, actually is that that's the same species uh, over there as, as our grizzly, isn't it?
0: Well, this is the European brown bear. It's a subspecies, same family, just a subspecies where just a little bit north of there, the Russian brown bear, that is the same species as our American grizzly. And, uh, of course, like the Kodiak bears, which they originally were called brown bears. Right. And they, uh, cl- they, they classify those bears. Any bear 100 miles within the coast is a brown bear. Any bear on the other side is classified as a grizzly. But one mm-hmm. day a bear can be a grizzly. The next day he can be a brown bear. <laughs> yeah, I think. On, I think the, on what side of the line he's on.
1: Yeah, I think the the, the Alaskan brown and the uh, the, uh, uh kodiak bear are now now back to being grizzly bears i'm not sure how they're uh, how they're reclassifying is that all, that.
2: yeah is that all part of the uh the listing situation endangered? i
1: was gonna mention that i you know i can't say for sure but i bet there's some kind of uh backroom politics going on there to influence that that labeling and i could be way off but hey l- real quick Mike, what was your what was your guess on the state record for North Carolina black bear?
0: I, I thought it was eight hundred and ten pounds.
1: What's your guess, Steve?
2: I don't know. I think it. Uh, the, all I can remember. This is like more pr- than this is more like than the price. Ancient.
1: Yeah, this is like the price is right.
2: I need your okay. bid. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, so if I go over, I'm out. Right. Right. Exactly. Eight hundred and nine pounds. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: bid under. You bid under Mike by one pound. There's no way you're well, going to win. Okay, so according to no, the,
2: at least I won't overbid. You should Maybe have gone. We a,
1: both
0: you, overbid.
1: But you're supposed to go eight eleven.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah.
2: So and you know I, I almost uh, said eight eleven
0: because that's, but that's not it. That's not That's not it.
2: <laughs> I need to teach you how to play the prices right, Chris. Uh, you got to bid under your guys so you don't go up if if you're up. Mm. Oh, okay. No. All right. <laughs> I give up. I don't know. Okay. So the uh,
1: <laughs> the record for North Carolina bat, black bear, according to the Google experts, and it looks like this came from North Carolina's wildlife webpage. So killed in 1988. Nineteen ninety-eight in Craven County, eight hundred and eighty pounds. Wow.
2: Eight eighty. Okay. Yeah. That's a big. Yeah, that's, that's a, a big. big yeah. Bear. I thought they had killed one more recently than that, but that—that's—that's uh, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to go down that rabbit path. I just found it. So. Uh, anyway, that yeah, I think that whole brown bear, grizzly bear whatever I think they're probably um, that's all part of some masterminding to 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 get all bears placed
2: on the uh, protected list but well oh, you know Mike I'd like to, to rewind just a little bit can you just take me from the the alarm clock in the morning to the kennel to the truck to the swamp? on a Louisiana hog hunt. How does all that come come about?
0: Well, pretty much exactly what you just <laughs> described. Uh, you know, uh, it naturally it depends on where we're hunting, but in the winter we're mostly hunting the marsh. So I've got my boat, you know, that's already hooked up. I normally have it parked by the dog kennels. You know, wake up, go out to the kennels, you know, and start loading dogs, you know, In the boat I have, I've got dog kennels made that I can put dogs in, and I've also got a chain across the bow.
2: How big is the boat? How big is the boat you use?
0: It's a 17 foot flat boat with a 140, I mean, a 115 on it. Okay. And really, it's not the most ideal boat uh, because it seems like winter, the tide's always out, so there's a lot of places we can't go. What my buddy and I have been talking about is going ahead and buying a mud boat, something we can get those real shallow bayous with and, you know, get to the dogs a little bit easier.
2: Is that where you put the motor, the propeller on a slant-like, or you can adjust the propeller? It has a long shaft on it? Right. Mm -hmm.
0: And uh, But anyway, we go out. You know, uh, one of our main places to hunt is about uh, almost two hours from the house. So we try to get there and get the boat launched, dogs collared up for daylight. We start even down the bayou. And uh, there's w- one place, I mean, we'll get strike after strike, but this island is so, so big, you know, and it's marsh. You know, we never turn loose on it just in case they, they bay or catch the hog half a mile in. We don't want to have to walk half a mile through marsh, you know, to get to them. So we hunt smaller islands. And uh, we just we go out there, uh, and normally we rig hunt there. You know, the dogs will strike, and we'll turn two or three dogs loose and, you know, mm-hmm. let them go uh, trail the hog up, get him jumped or bait or whatever. And uh, we, we'll normally do that till about noon. We try to get out there by noon and, you know, call it a good day.
2: So now, when they strike, sometimes they're striking a cold trail then, right? Right, uh-huh.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, okay, uh, I guess it'd be a good point to interject here about uh, whether dogs are open trailers or silent trailers. What's your preference?
0: <laughs> My preference is and always will be an open, cold-trailing dog. And I, But I have noticed over the last 12 15 years, some of my dogs were tending to go silent cold trailing. And I think that's the way we were hunting, you know, just depending on, you know, hot rig strikes and throwing dogs out, you know, and getting them jumped. But, you know, the last two or three years, I've been trying to breed back more, you know, to get more trailing dogs. You know, the hog hunters love a silent plot, they're all over the internet looking for them. But, you know, if a dog. If a dog can smell it and he can move it, I want him opening. And, you know, as well as I do, like bear hunting, it's next to impossible to get young dogs into a silent, trailing dog. You know, uh, right. if they're open and barking, you can always get dogs in. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. and it's important in big game hunting uh, uh, to interject there that you do have dogs that will pack to the dogs that are up front. I tell right. a little story, you know, I maybe I've told it on this podcast, but I used to get really frustrated with my dad when I was young because we'd have a bear track there and guys would pull up and they were getting dogs out of the boxes and, you know, to turn loose a start dog and maybe it would, as it moved out, turn loose more and more and guys started dumping boxes and my dad would be just standing there with his or, or maybe he hadn't even gotten them out of the box yet. And I'd say, Dad, come on, come on. We're going to be behind. He said, no. He said, just wait till they get just about out of here, and then I'll cut mine. And then when they cross on the other side of the mountain or tree, the bear, we'll see which ones were in front. And, uh, you know, that was his idea. He wanted them to pack to the front dogs and then hopefully take over the track themselves and go on with it. But um, that was just his way. That was his his thing—he wanted a fat, he wanted a dog with a good nose, but he wanted a dog with a lot of speed, and uh, and that was his way of getting that, you know.
0: Yeah, and you know the old saying, "Speed kills," and I do believe it. But nose is what I've always bred for, you know. If mm-hmm. you can, and there's places I don't need cold-nosed dogs, but there's also places we track hunt, and like when I used to bear hunt in Florida and all that. Those boys are big on trail dogs, and if you don't have a dog that can take a track in the afternoon and, and you know, in the Florida heat and humidity, you're just going to be out of the race, you know. So, you know, trailing is my number one priority, and then I, I would say speed and grid after that. So it's uh, those are all my preferences
2: so let's say you rig this this hog and and you've got the track and it's moving out what what happens then
0: well you know hopefully they they trail it up and get it jumped uh which most of the time they do you know how
2: how far would they typically trail a cold trail before i guess that varies but uh is there a, a general uh idea of how long it takes to get one jumped,
0: it can be anywhere from one minute to uh, you know 15, <laughs> 20 minutes. Uh, we actually, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, since Garmin's came out, we can actually tell how far the haul gets from you know, when they jump. And we were riding along one day, we got a pretty good strike. And I turned my Bosco dog and Jack dog loose. They ran nine hundred and sixty yards across that marsh, not saying a word. And all of a sudden they set up baying. And we,
2: you know, we get around
0: there, caught the hog, but that hog never moved from the spot it was bedded at. And uh so, you know, I guess with the right wind, you think about that that hog was 960 yards from where they rigged that. So it's, uh, you know, that might be a little farther than most places, but, you know, with the wind and open marsh, you know, scent travels a long ways. You know, we've had uh, rigs in other places, you know, and a lot of dogs will rig, but you know, because they're catching scent off the bow of the boat. But once they're down in the marsh, They can't figure it out. You know, the good rig dogs know to just keep pushing into the wind and they're going to come across the track or the hog.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the things that you're saying remind me back to our episode with Chris Todd talking about uh, lion dogs in Arizona and working cold trails and dogs that will continue to reach to continue to move forward, figure out the direction the track's going, and pro, pro, proceed that way uh, until they can get the scent again. You know, So it's that ability to figure out a track and move in the direction of the game. I think that it, it sounds like it separates all types of, of uh, successful uh, big game
0: dogs. Now, something else, too. As far as the cold trailing goes, certain times of the year, and this is one of them, when the acorns are falling and hitting the ground, I think more sows are, are receptive, you know, because hogs with a lot of, uh, say, Russian influence, they, uh, they tend to come in heat in the fall because most of the pigs we see are January through March. That being said, you know, you can find pigs any time of the year, but they're mostly feral pigs. Uh, you know, I've heard a lot of propaganda, you know, on anti-hog people saying, well, we need to kill them all. Hogs will have three litters a year. Well, that's not true. You know, maybe in commercial hog farmers, you're, if you're lucky, you might get three litters, but you know, in the woods, you know, and like I said, hogs with a lot of domestic blood in them, if they've got the food, they might have two litters a year at most But the hogs with a lot of uh, European genes, they only come in once a year because I used to raise Russian hogs, and all I could get was one litter a year out of them. And most of them were born January through March.
2: Well, I want to talk to you about, or Chris maybe wants to take that and run with it, uh, just in a minute about the the sport and, and what the future is there. But you talked about. I know that you live catch a lot
0: of hogs, right? Right. Yeah. We we catch probably ninety nine percent of them alive. <laughs> so you know, some, sometimes the dogs kill some. You know, but our goal is to catch them alive.
3: You know, well, this all started. Uh,
0: yeah. This all started before the stigma of turning hogs loose or relocating them came about. Uh, you know, it goes back to time when, you know, people had fr- free ranging hogs on open range and they would take their dogs out, catch them, mark them, castrate them. And, uh, you know, the guys I got started with, that's what they did. And it, to me, it was just a, a lot better sport catching them alive. And, then you can determine if you want to kill it or relocate it
2: i see and and when uh, uh, describe that okay we've got a let's say 150 pound uh hog here i don't guess it matters which sex we're talking about maybe it does on the ground dogs are baying it you've turned the catch dog loose we've got this hog caught what's the process from that point on
1: hey mike mike you mind if i jump in here and, and uh describe it from a non-hog hunter's view <laughs> there we go yeah. go okay. ahead okay so we catch this pig we catch this hog out in this swamp and I, it was like in an old junkyard or something out there and uh mike's just like a wild man tearing through the brush to get to this bay up and uh my buddy and i of course he turns around and says you mind bringing the bulldog keep in mind that that we have never been around pit bulls that didn't want to bite us so we're trying to bleed this pit bull through there and he's not wanting to lead real good and mike's just tearing through there like a wild man and andy's got a hold of this dog's leash and he's got a held out at arm's length like he's showing at the westminster dog show you know trying to keep the bulldog off of him and he's like come on buddy come on so that's that part of getting in there to the catch and when we finally do get up there mike's yelling at us the whole time get that bulldog up here get that bulldog up here we finally coax this bulldog up there and and get him up to Mike, and Mike turns him loose. And I'll skip what happened with the bulldog, but the Plots caught this hog. Mike runs in there, grabs this hog by the back legs, and starts wheelbarrowing him around through the brush. And I mean, this thing's the Plots are pulling one way, and Mike's holding it up, and he flips that hog over on its side. And kneels down on its neck and its midsection. Plots has still got a hold of it, and he's yelling at yelling at one of us to come over there and help him hold this hog down. And I've never done this before, and I'm like, well, I've held I've held domestic hogs down a lot, so I'm thinking, well, this might be the same thing. So I, I took the position right there by Mike, and he he's got uh, he hands you strings when you're going in, too. all his leashes are made out of strings and and uh, poly rope. And he he shackles this hog down on the ground, and now you've got this hog hog tied on the ground. How'd I do, Mike? How'd that sound?
0: Y'all did great. <laughs> so, you know, no, no complaints at all. Oh, and if you remember right, that bulldog was one I think I picked up the night before to try. And it actually went in and bathed the hog. Yeah, he did. You know, and would... uh, it wasn't until the hog tried to break out of there that the yeah that that the that the plots caught the hog. Exactly. And uh, needless to say, I took that bulldog back to its owner, and luckily got a refund only.
2: Yeah. So you took him back to the bulldog pet store, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. So we. So That's not funny.
0: Not a... That's funny.
1: See, yeah. Not only see
0: what I. I had lost track of. Go ahead, Chris.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, add to my story here. You know, not only, not only were we guys that didn't know anything about this bulldog, but Mike didn't know about it either. And the whole time he's telling us, Oh, he won't hurt you. He'll be fine. And we're thinking based on what experience here, you know, we have no idea what this dog's going to do.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but it, didn't take but uh that one baying to find out that bulldog was not w- what i was interested in so and luckily the plots came through and caught and that was a big sow she was a good 200 pounds or yeah. better
2: yeah i'll post a picture now, of her with this episode right now on these hogs some of them you you uh actually uh, uh you do you take them out uh, and uh, uh, sell and you know can they be sold or when you actually catch the hog what do you do with it the next point the next step
0: uh, okay well we tied the hog up and uh, you know there's places you could sell them and all but I've never been in it for the money you know I would rather you know 80% of the hogs we just turn loose you know uh, and it depends on the profit you're hunting and it's the landowner's decision. Like, we have a lot of places we hunt now. The farmers want them dead because of the damage they do. So, you know, we kill them on the spot. And the management areas we hunt, you have to kill them there. But on other private uh, land, and like I said, this was before the stigma of turning hogs loose came about. You know, now it's against the law to turn them loose. But back then, you know, probably 80% of them, we just turned them loose where we caught them at. I see. So it's, it's, uh, but one thing I wanted to, uh, touch base, you had talked about cold trailing before. Well, this time of year when sows are coming in, you might cold trail a boar two miles or so, and it's hard to stay on the same boar, because this boar's running around to different little harems, I guess you would say, checking for sows and heat. And a lot of times that throws, you know, the dogs off trailing the boar, you know on the other hogs so you don't always end up on the hog you started with
2: well what what is the largest hog that you've actually weighed or you uh, you know in your experience uh, mike what's it, the biggest hog to, yeah
0: it, it's just hard to say steve we've called uh some hogs that and, and we've weighed a lot you know, uh, in the 300 pound category and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we bar a lot of hogs, like if they're off colored, you know, like not good Russians, we'll go ahead and bar them and turn them back loose and bars get really big, you know, uh, bar
2: essentially you castrate the hog,
0: right? Correct. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we caught one that we, well, we didn't estimate him. But well, we took him to the butcher. This was a bar hog we caught right behind the house that we had actually cut him two years previously and turned him loose. Well, when we caught him and took him to the butcher, he estimated that hog would go about 450 pounds. And he sees mm. a lot of hogs, you know. So he's got a good idea on what they weigh and all that. And I, I would say that would probably be about the biggest.
2: If I you know, wanted a really... Yeah, if I wanted a real nice trophy boar head to hang on my wall, what would I expect those canine teeth or those tushes to be like? How long would they be? Is there some kind of a a standard, or how do
0: you score a hog? Well, we, uh, anything with two and a half to three inch cutters on them, Is pretty much a trophy, you know, because boar hogs are always breaking their tusk, uh, you know, fighting other boars. Well, that's one thing. Bar hogs will grow bigger tusks because they don't fight, you know. All they're interested in is eating. But uh, I'd say any hog with two-and-a-half to three-inch cutters on him is a pretty good trophy. And that being said, you know, like the marsh hogs don't get as heavy as hogs on higher ground. You know, they, they just don't have near the amount of food, you know, to put on the weight. So What
2: do they 200- eat in the marsh? What do they eat in the marsh? I know that well, they eat the nut crop or the mass crop on the ridges, but...
0: Yeah, they, uh, and there's parts of the marsh that uh, doesn't have any mass crop. But they've got a, it's called a three-corner grass out there that has a bulb on the end. And anywhere you find that growing, you'll see where hogs have been rooting it up. But they're uh, mostly some type of vegetation. You know, it's always surprised me that deer and hogs thrive out in the marsh where there is no mass crop. And, uh, you you know, you get a lot of deer hunters saying, well, the hogs, you know, they, they run the deer off and all that. And I've never believed that. You know, you go back to the 60s here, we didn't have any deer here. They were imported in. Uh, and, but we had thousands of hogs running loose in the woods. Now there's more deer than there are hogs, and they they do, you know, deer are browsers. They eat at different uh, levels. And the only thing they do compete for, if you have mass, would be the acorns. But, you know, deer and hogs might not feed side by side. But, you know, when the hogs move out, the deer will come in and eat. You know, and I've seen that on cameras. you know, at feeders. So, you know, that story that hogs drive the deer away that, you know, was, I guess you'd call it wash. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's like we just have so many more deer now and way more deer than we have hogs. So that tells me. The hogs never, uh, you know, damage the, you know, the, the deer at all. So,
2: well, as a hounds person, a houndsman, we know there's a lot of myths concerning deer that people believe, unfortunately, that are not true, Uh, like that the hounds run the deer out of the woods and, and so forth, and. And we all know those things uh, are not true. But, uh, well, right. how is uh, the sport down there in Louisiana or in your connections through the South? Is, is hunt, hog hunting with dogs a growing sport? Is it holding its own? Is it declining? What What do you think?
0: Oh, uh, there's more hog hunters now than there ever was. You know, back when I started, and this is right at 40 years ago, uh, they'll actually it was more than 40 cause I actually started at 18, you know, with cur dogs and bulldogs, And then I laid off cause I had to move out of town for three years to run one of my dad's warehouses. But, uh, back then I could count on one hand the hog hunters all through Louisiana. And now, and, and you can see on the internet, there are thousands and thousands of hog hunters just scattered throughout the South. So yeah, it's not a dying sport by any means. Well that that's
2: good to hear. Chris, you uh you jump in here. I'm I've been kinda like uh, hogging the microphone. You've been hogging the mic.
1: You've been hogging the mic. Well I got mad back when you said that I, I didn't know how to play prices right. So I'm I'm recovered now. <laughs> uh hey Mike, you know, getting back to uh you know, some of the some of the biological part of this, because I've dealt with this a long time and in Indiana has has had hogs for a few years and and this hysteria around hog invasions. I think different places you go, you look at Texas and and they've identified a real problem with hogs over there just because of reproduction. But you know, you said something about domestic hogs. Domestic hogs are bred. To reproduce, I mean that's the a, a sow's whole purpose is to to reproduce. So those genetics genetics have been refined for years and years. And while we were taking a break, or while I was taking a break, and uh, I looked up from Purdue, and their estimation is that a production hog has two litters of sows, or I'm sorry, two two litters a year. And uh, you take into consideration that they have been bred down with a fine-tooth comb to be able to produce that. I'm curious, you know, why so many people think that that uh, wild hogs who have not been strategically bred for that are going to have two to three litters a year. That doesn't make sense to me.
0: Right. And, you know, it's a lot of the people are anti-hogs, and farmers being one of them, and I can understand that because hogs, like any other species, if they're not regulated, man, they can overpopulate a place and, uh, destroy everything.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: They, uh, you know, biologists have, have long said, if you don't kill 75% of the hog population, you know, just to break even. Mm
3: -hmm. And,
0: and I really, I really believe that because, you know, like this management area we hunt, you know, uh, in Louisiana, it, uh, we take out a lot of hogs. Like I said, Charlie was at 91 and I was at 75. Now that's together, you know, between us. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's just us. That's not counting all the other hunters that are out there. And uh, this is, I forgot how, how big this management area is, uh, but it's, uh, it's a lot of hogs we take out. But then the following year, they're right back up to the same numbers. Yeah, yeah. And you know something else. Wildlife and Fisheries in Louisiana did a study on radio collared deer
3: mm-hmm.
0: where they, they ran deliberately ran them with dogs. And in all cases, those deer were back on their home range within 12 hours. You know, you can't run a deer off. Hogs will move away from pressure. You go in and dog a place, you know, a couple of days, they're gone. They mm. won't be back for a while. Yeah. So... In that regard, I will say I think hogs are smarter than deer. You know, a deer yeah. will literally starve, starve himself to death on his home 50 acres or whatever it is. Where hogs, they're going to move where the food is.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just read something the other day. Uh, you know, hogs hogs rank within the top three of intelligence in, uh, in the animal kingdom. So, yeah, they are definitely smarter. And, and a deer's home range is around two, two and a half miles. Uh, unless it's a rutting buck, so yeah, those does are going to stay right there, and that, that again that uh, debunks that theory that, that somehow we're going to run deer off because only the rutting bucks will leave that two and a half mi- mile area there,
0: right? That's right.
1: So, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a lot of misconceptions. I think, it, I think it, you know, if you talk about hog populations, every farmer is going to tell you there's too many, and if you talk to a hog hunter, there aren't enough, so uh. You know everybody wants everybody wants to to uh uh their piece of it you know I think that's that's where we're at on this. Steve, how close are we here? i think we're what well, we're, we're getting pretty you got anything
2: else yeah i wanna jump in here just a second and I'm gonna put the 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 retired game warden on the spot here just a minute All right. and not actually. Uh, you per se but maybe your profession or those that you worked with you know back in the day when I was bear hunting regularly with my dad and my dad was very active in bear hunting and then in the state association and we went through a battle in West Virginia to to keep bear hunting with hounds and uh, there was a, a big campaign called save our bears and I've talked about this before but anyway the consensus among hunters at that time was, if you really want to know what this resource is doing how 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 is it doing, get out there in the woods with a hunter because just like mike is as obviously knows this game animal as well as anyone mm-hmm. and why? And I think I know the answer, and I, I'm I'm assuming I know what the answer will be. Why don't the agencies and the biologists in these agencies take that approach more to reach out? They've got all of these people out there in the woods studying that game animal, and yet they seem to want to rely on computer models and, uh, and all kinds of – what we might call junk science as as ed vance out in uh, california as he talks in his book trained by a hound dog about how a lot of the numbers were just super fit you know were just drummed up numbers why don't these agencies reach out to us for information do you know chris well you know being retired
1: i am unleashed and unmuzzled now so i have no problem <laughs> weighing in on this thing but i i really think that uh uh, i'll just start off by saying that that several states uh that i know of still do hunter surveys uh you can find a lot of those hunter surveys online Um, in indiana for instance uh they they put out the wild bulletin and they offer hunters the opportunity to uh, participate in these surveys a lot of times it's just like our state hound associations, it's hard to find people who are willing to participate and take those. So you've got people that are that are putting that information out there and giving people that opportunity to be involved in this. And they put the effort into putting the survey together, and then they see uh, a lackluster involvement in in participating Mm -hmm. so after a few years they sit back and they think why are we putting the effort out there so you know my first my first response is is if your state is a state that offers that then take time and fill it out you know that's how they're trying to collect some data but i also know that um i know that some biologists uh Just like any profession, whether you're a doctor or you're an engineer or or whatever, these houndsmen are sharp guys. Just by listening to Mike, he's been able to pick up on some of this data just on his experience of of being out there probably 200-plus days a year. So he understands what hogs do. He understands how they interact with deer. He knows that that his hog hunting doesn't affect deer hunting. He didn't need a, a study by the state to do that. Uh, He learned that on his own. And we've talked about some of those things that hunters have found out. And it's hard for people who have paid a lot of money for an education and got a career in this to be able to accept the word of this person that has no formal education. You know, that's that's the ego plays a lot into it, I think. And I think there's a lot of room for game managers to step back and... Reach out to these people that are u- using the resource every day and listen to what they're trying to tell them, and and then if they see an anomaly from or something that differs from what they think, then they can research that part. But if it's consistent with what they know, then then I think it's a real easy and and uh, inexpensive way for state game agencies to gather data. Um, you know, one of the things we're working on right now in Indiana is is a a bobcat season and reaching out to the, to the state wildlife biologist that's involved in that, you know, I've encouraged her to do some studies with houndsmen to determine when that bobcat season should occur, how it should be, how it should be uh, uh, regulated and and implemented. And uh, it's been pretty, the responses have been pretty spartan. So in today's culture, I think one of the things we're dealing with is the cultural perception of hunting. And I think we've got way too many wildlife managers that are, um, listening, trying to listen to both sides of this, this issue. You've got the, the anti hunting, hunting community on one side and you've got the hunters on the other side and they're trying to manage on cultural acceptance for, for what is being accepted what's acceptable in today's society and and to me that's unfortunate and it's it's actually a, I believe it's a tragedy for for the resource for for wildlife managers to be taking that stance and uh uh yep go ahead mike you got something you want to throw in uh, uh
0: yeah let me step in real quick because i know y'all y'all are on a time limit and i'm going uh by this buddy of mine who is a biologist and a lot of these biologists you know when they're doing their thesis and sometimes they get grants. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they've got to feel, you know, uh, ha- have some kind of information, you know, to write down. And you just can't do it all in say one year or whatever. You know, uh, y- you really literally have to spend years, you know, out in the woods and this and that to more or less learn the habits. And so many of them have relied on houndsmen, especially like on lion studies, you know, even on bear studies and stuff like that. You know, either collar the lions so they can study their travels. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to touch back on uh, government agencies. You know, in our case, and this was several years back, you know, they give us the month of February after deer season to go in there with hounds or dog stuff. you know, to try to eradicate as many hogs as possible. But then at the end of February, they hired helicopter hunters at our expense. Well, that year, the helicopter hunters only killed 27 hogs. And uh, so (laughs) to me, that showed right there, dog hunters are way more effective. And cheaper. And cheaper. Because they're making money, you know, from the dog hunters. Because... Every hunter's gotta have a a permit, you know, to hunt the management area. Well why not just give the hog hunters an extra month until turkey season starts, you know, and that they still make more money and it's not costing the taxpayers, you know, any more money. And that being said, getting back to Texas problem with hogs, Texas landowners are their own worst enemies because to them, the deer hunting is king. That's what they make their money on. Mm-hmm. And they just believe hog hunters are going to come in there and stir the deer up. And so they always have a constant uh, hog problem. Traps will only get so many. Dogs will really only get so many. You know, there's really nothing that's going to be 100% effective. So you really have to try them all. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> okay, I'm done. It's <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: a good discussion. Yeah good discussion chris i'm done as mike says stick a fork in me yeah yeah i
1: think it's been a good uh good conversation catching up with old friends here so yeah steve i or, or, and, mike, go ahead
0: and i'd love to have you guys come down for a hunt you know uh we, we could sure get after them so
2: well you think at my age i could handle it mike
0: um <laughs>
2: well you I, talked I you about can. my uh, friend greg michaels and you kind of shamed me there so i I probably put out an extra effort
0: uh, you know where we hunt the marsh is really not that difficult hunting you know we try to str- stay on hard marsh and if the <laughs> dogs are uh just too far out you can do what i do send the kids in <laughs>
2: that's for sure well i'd surely enjoy that mike i really would uh ever since i saw those early pictures that i spoke about at the beginning of this podcast i have wanted to do just that and well it's been great to talk to you
0: yep, yep. you too i thanks enjoyed for, it
2: thanks mike i really appreciate you coming on
1: and and uh sharing your story and the story that bayou cajun plots with us and uh I'm kind of biased because I've got a couple couple of your your stock running around here right now and and uh I've always wanted to get uh, my hands on some
0: okay, well, you might want to go ahead and knock them in the head now and save yourself some grief <laughs> yep Steve <laughs> they will keep you keep you up late at night or long in the day
1: that's right that's
2: right <laughs> steve you've uh you want to send us off here? Well, I, Mike, you know, if you've listened to one of these podcasts before, we, we have a saying, and you know the fellow that's really the author of this saying, you know, John Harris from West Virginia, I'm sure. But yeah. uh, John, one day on a sheep killing bear in West Virginia, old Santana, his took the track one way and all the other dogs went to the other. And they said, John, what are you going to do? And John says, as I always say when we close these things out, you follow your hound and I'll follow mine.
1: If we're That's going right if we're going after a hog, I'm following Mike, so I'll just
0: tell you that right now. <laughs> that yeah. would
2: be the right choice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, sure enjoy talking with you guys,
1: so You bet Mike. It's always fun.